these guys. And uh, I know that, uh, where's Brother Harrison at? He had a, a very interesting question that I think maybe we should start out with. So, uh, Harrison, if you would uh, ask these men uh, your question that you asked me. Okay, so the differences between them is uh, Luther was very much closer to the Roman Catholic view. He believed in consubstantiation, and that is that Christ is present in, within, and under the elements. And so it was very, very close to the Roman Catholic view, but not exactly transubstantiation. And it had to do with their view of Christ. He had a certain view of the omnipresence of Christ in a way that's not exactly biblical. And uh, so that had to do with that. And Zwingli agreed more, excuse me, Zwingli's position was that the Lord's Supper was simply a memorial, that there was no presence of Christ at all within the elements. And Luther and Zwingli uh, disagreed about that issue. And sadly, uh, Zwingli still wanted fellowship with Luther, and he wanted unity among the Reformers, but Luther would have none of it because of that one disagreement that they had. In fact, Luther in his older age in his older age was much different than Luther in his earlier stages during the Reformation, and he was much quicker to separate from those who had disagreements with him. In fact, he even made the statement that there is no hope for the Zwinglians in the sense of their eternal salvation. And Calvin had more of a mediating view in between where he believed in the spiritual presence of Christ in the elements. So he was more in the middle, which became the predominant Reformed view. And just to give you an understanding of how Luther was, Calvin and Luther actually never talked face to face. But Calvin did write a letter that he gave to Philip Melanchthon, Luther's friend, to give to him. And later on, after Luther died, Calvin asked Melanchthon what was Luther's response to that letter. And Melanchthon revealed to Calvin that he never gave him the letter because Calvin had great respect for Luther. But in that letter, he just gave him one gentle correction. And he said he wouldn't be able to give it to Luther because that's how upset Luther would have been. And so that's how Luther got uh, the older he got. But there was the differences there. So I'm not exactly sure the view of Paul uh, on the Eucharist, but or excuse me, on the, yeah, the Eucharist and the Lord's Supper. But here in our church, we would hold to more of a Zwinglian view, which was also the primary Anabaptist view that the supper is a memorial. But maybe you have more to say about that, Paul. I'm not sure. Yeah. Okay. So that was the, the differences. Luther, I mean, you have Catholicism here, Luther, Calvin, and then Zwingli all the way over here concerning that issue. So. All right. Um, <clears throat> one, of the, one of the things that, uh, that many times the Reformers... Um, get accused of, right, because we believe in the sovereignty of God and that salvation belongeth unto the Lord. Um, if you could, one of the accusations that is made against us on many times is that we believe that uh, people are robots, that, uh, you know, well, how can this be that God is, you know, this or that, or sovereign and that, but men has their free will and all these kind of things. So could, could you guys just kind of in a general sense kind of correct that error? 
why we believe that men, men are dead and why God, salvation belongs unto him and that why we believe men are not robots. It's simply a product of the work of God. Well, you know, there's two complementary teachings in the Bible on the sovereignty of God and man's free will. And if you don't accept both, you're going to get in big trouble because you're going to end up just saying one of them is right. And we're probably here in, in the churches represented here, we're probably more used to dealing with people that don't think like us who say, you know, salvation is entirely a matter of a person's free will and they have the ability within themselves to say yes or no to the offer of the gospel. That's what we're used to. But in our churches, uh, we believe that the Bible portrays man very clearly as so hopelessly lost and dead in trespasses and sins that there's not, there's not even a remote possibility that any fallen human being could do one little thing uh, spiritually right. Certainly not trust in the Lord Jesus for salvation. He doesn't have the ability to will that. So we believe, as the Bible clearly says, I, I was quoting today, uh, you know, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, for by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. Even the faith is not from us when we believe. It's a gift from God. But we also know that man is free to do what his fallen nature wants to do. So in that sense, he is free. I mean, when we sin, even as unbelievers who sin, we sin because we want to. There's free will in action, free, doing what our nature wants to do. But where this always gets most discussed is in regard to salvation. And so when we bring it to that point, we have to say this. God determined before the foundation of the world every person who will be saved. That, that's in Ephesians 1, right? He, he, he chose before the foundation of the world. He determined that. He determined those who will be saved. But in coming to Christ, if we're all incapacitated, how did any of us ever get to believe? The only way we got to believe is that God did a miracle in our soul, which Jesus called being born again. He made us alive spiritually. He made us to understand the gospel and then gave us the ability with a new heart and a new will and a new mind that were all God-given. Then he enabled us to believe. So we hold completely to the sovereignty of God. No one's going to be saved apart from the sovereign, eternal, determining will of God. But at the same time, we say man is free to the degree he's bound by his nature. If he's only fallen, he's an unbelieving person, he can only do what a fallen man can do. But if by God's grace he gets a new nature, now he's got new capabilities to do new things by the Spirit of God. Very well done. So uh, I know earlier today, kind of in, in some of the messages, the, I, the idea, the 
the regulative principle and the normative principle. You hear a lot of, a, a lot of times, you hear those, that terminology, those phrases, if you will. Uh, can you please someone explain to us the difference and, and what it is as a, you know, so that we all have a proper understanding of the regulative principle and then the normative principle within, within the local body? Well, you want to answer this one, Howard? Okay. So the normative principle and the regulative principle would agree on two things. They are not to do anything that is that Scripture forbids in the worship. They would also agree that we are to do in worship and in our church order what Scripture does say that we should do. Where the disagreement comes is, is that what do we do about those things that Scripture doesn't mention, that Scripture doesn't directly forbid? And the norm, those who hold to the normative principle would say it is okay to incorporate those things for the edification of the church, whereas those who hold to the regulative principle would say, no, we are only to do what God commands. Do you see the difference? Do you see that? Mm -hmm. So there's agreements on two things. We obey what Scripture says concerning our worship. We don't do those things which Scripture forbids, but those things that Scripture is silent on, those who hold to the regulative principle would say, no, if God has not commanded it, commanded it, we don't bring those elements in. But if God um, has not forbidden it, we are allowed to bring some of those things in to incorporate those in. So that's the differences between those two views. So let's say, just, just to give an example, let's say Holy Thursday, okay, in, in Roman Catholicism. So basically the view of the Roman Catholic Church holding to the normative principle, and that's maybe an extreme example, is it is okay to add a holy day like that to the calendar and to recognize that as a holy day. Scripture doesn't forbid us from doing that. Whereas those who would hold the regulative principle would say, no, we have nothing in Scripture that would, uh, since God has not, I would put it this way, since God has not commanded us to recognize such a day, we ought not recognize, to recognize such a day. So was I clear on that issue, or did I just confuse it more? Clear. Okay, yeah. So <laughs> does anybody have any questions? I've got another one, but does anybody else have uh, some questions for the men up here? Okay. Yeah. I just wanted to say one thing also about that. And, and if you want to add anything else onto that, but, you know, it was brought up earlier, and I think that's why that question came up about the regulative and normative. It is true that okay, myself, I prefer and I believe in the regulative principle. Reason being, then it's not, nothing's left in my imagination. It's already been prescribed not just described, but prescribed in Scripture. We have examples of it. We have commandments of it. We have directives of it in Scripture. To the normative principle, it may be just fine. But that's as far as you can be assured of it. It may be just fine. Why not just stick to what's been prescribed, what's, what, stick to history, stick to what's prescribed, stick to what's always been what's always been regulated in the churches from the beginning and is always according to scripture and you don't ever run the risk of running off the reservation. That's my own view on that. I just want to throw that in because when I hear that, it, I don't think about it that much because, you know, you sometimes get so used to what you're always around and that here basically pretty much believe in regular principle. But I come back to the same thing, like the way we pray, what we say, how we live in that. Why would... 
there's so much, right, absolute teachings in Scripture. And we can struggle enough to grow in our understanding and our walking of them. Why bring in something or start doing something that's not there? That's my own opinion, and I wonder if either of you have any You know, I'm, I'm not from this church, and so I want to present something a little bit different. But like was said earlier today, you know, I consider this a very minor thing to differ over, but I just want to give you the other perspective. For a long time, I was of the regulative principle, but I switched to the normative principle. And one of the things that forced me to have to deal with that is when I first came to North Dakota, I was in a church that they sang only the Psalms. And now think in light of, of uh, what Brother Howard just said. You know, they had a strong argument by saying, why would you want to sing anything uninspired that could have an error in it where you just sing the Psalms and you know you're singing Scripture truth? And for a while, that, that held me. But after a while, I said, no, God's given too many gifted uh, people to the church, too many beautiful hymns, which we all love to sing, I noticed. And, uh, <laughs> and so that's just one example of why I, I, I don't any longer go with the regular principle, but with the normative principle. You notice when it says psalms, it also says hymns and spiritual songs. So it allows, even at that time, they were singing not just psalms, but hymns that were already also in the church, and obviously spiritual songs, which I think would go along with normative normative singing, right? So in that in that aspect, I said scripture teaches that and completely allows for that and directives in that. We need we need three more. In regard to what Howard just said, I think he's absolutely right. I think that's what Psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs means is Psalms the inspired psalms of scripture and then spiritual songs uh, where the s they're true to the spirit. Yeah. You know, you don't want to sing junk. You right. don't want to sing untrue stuff, but you sing what's true to the word, spiritual songs and hymns. But what they were using on me back in the day was those are three different categories of the psalms. And they had a pretty good case for it if you follow them through. So I'm just letting you know that's, that's why uh, that was 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 they made that argument they thought that was psalms was one category of psalms hymns was a, and if you look in the in the greek uh, superscriptions on with some of the psalms those titles are used yeah so yeah. psalms hymns and songs so they did have a case so to speak for that so in all fairness <laughs> all right uh, are you guys all done Excellent. On to, uh, Brother Todd had a question. Okay. Okay. Well, it's it's quite a process, you know, and so we're even as we're, we're going through church history on Sunday mornings, two times a month in our church here. And we already have seen this process as we're just entering into the third century. And we've already seen this process in our study. And so what we saw, of course, the New Testament, but then in uh, 
the end of the first century, early second, you still see the churches being led by a plurality of elders. And then, though, when you get into the early second century, still you see men like Ignatius and others who write about a split between the office, a split with that one office of eldership or the presbytery. And you see the churches starting to be led by one bishop and under him the presbyters or the elders. Whereas before, it was just the elders uh, leading the church. So like if you look at Clement of Rome and, uh, and you even look at the Church of Rome up to the middle of the second century, we know for sure they were led by a group of elders. Uh, but at the time of Ignatius and as you move on in the second century, you see more and more the church is just being led by one bishop now and under him a group of presbyters. And then eventually, once you get into the third century, and this is just general, okay, but you see the bishop starting to govern all the churches in a particular region, or in a, sorry, the, the believers in that, the one city, and then eventually in a particular region. And so eventually you have the four influential, five influential cities, Jerusalem, Antioch, Alexandria, Constantinople, and Rome, the bishops of those cities uh, leading the churches in their various areas. And then eventually when you have the eastern-western split, you have the Church of Rome and the bishop there over all the churches in the west, whereas the other four you know, cities split off from them eventually as you go down the line. Uh, but more and more, definitely, once you get closer to, um, I would say, the 10th century, the 11th century, you see more and more of the papacy and the Bishop of Rome exercising their authority in a very tyrannical way at that time. But you, you see it starting in the 2nd century where you had some bishops of Rome such as, uh, I can't remember if it was Stephen or if it was Victor now. It left me where they wanted to excommunicate the churches in, in Asia Minor simply for not celebrating the resurrection day of the Lord Jesus yearly because they disagreed on exactly what day to do that on. And a church father like Irenaeus wrote to the Bishop of Rome saying, you know, you need to cool yourself down because that's not right. So he didn't have the power that he did later on, but he was already trying to push forward that authority because of the influential city that he was in. And when you get into the third century, you'll see that still being the case, but you'll have people like Clement of Alexandria writing, no, 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 we as bishops, we can counsel each other, we can have some disagreements, but there's not one bishop over all the other bishops. So the Roman Catholic view of the Bishop of Rome simply is not there in the New Testament, and it's not there in the first few centuries of the church. But it was a process over time. Definitely when you get into the 10th century, you find the Bishop of Rome really being completely tyrannical it might have been a little bit before that but definitely when you get to that time you see him exercising that but it was a process it, it wasn't something that just happened in a day it was a slow but steady process Amen. brother tom did you have a question Thank you. 
Well, correct me if I'm wrong, but regular principle, what we're mainly talking about is order of worship and do, what to go on during the worship and during the worshiping of the Lord, right? So in a sense, right, it's kind of like different things. A person's personal practices and personal beliefs at home about things like that compared to, for instance, you know, of an order of worship or things to be done during the gathered assembly and apart from the gathered assembly, how to run that. So at the same time, I understand he said, don't make mountains out of molehills, you know, but at the same time, we need to be discerning enough to, to sometimes know, you know, what, you know, what to allow, what not to allow, you know, and, you know, and, and at least be discerning enough to at least take the time, I think, you know, to, to ask us, right, because regular principle concerns the congregation, right? It, can ter- it determines an order for things for everybody. So that's not, that's not the same as personal freedom, you know, personal freedom. There's a difference there from the way I understand when we talk about, you know, the regular normative principle. We're mainly talking about things we allow during the process of the, the gathered assembly and so much, right? Not necessarily uh, personal liberty issues. You, you, does that, you know, it, it's, there's kind of a difference on that compared to like whether you think it's good to eat meats or vegetables or, honor, or recognize certain days or such. There's a little difference on that, I would think. All right. Anybody else have a question? All right. Well, I have one more, at least one more. So, um, again, getting back to, you know, the Reformation movement and all that God has done there. Um, <coughs> I remember one time I was I was preaching on the five solas, and um, and so there was a lady. She was very confused about that, especially the first teaching that I did on it. She came up and said, "We're well, going to start speaking Latin now." Is that what we're doing? Are we going Catholic? Are we doing? I mean, there's just a, a lot of confusion <laughs> concerning it, and uh, and it, and, uh, and I felt bad for her because again, just not being around it, not understanding it. So, um, would you guys be able to just take a moment and just explain, especially those foundations of the Reformation movement, the sola fide, sola scriptura, um, those five, if you would. Those are. I know you all know what Pastor Mike's talking about, and those are five wonderful ways to sum up. You know, a lot of times people will ask you for, can you give me the short version of why you're reformed as opposed to something else? And I think those five are excellent because they 
they all go back to the key issue. You know, whereas there's things about Martin Luther that uh, I just can't go along with, you know, that he believed. But when it comes to the five solas, you know, you can't beat it for what God showed him or I like to say rediscovered. It's yeah. like the gospel got lost. You know, I know there were some faithful understanding it here and there, but the influence in the world was so small that when Luther was blessed of God and the Reformation came, it was like the gospel being rediscovered again. And the reason they use those five phrases um, is because they made, up, they made up the key points. So somebody shoot me one at a time and I'll say what they mean because I don't <laughs> want to try to pull them all out. Go ahead. Okay. Sola Scriptura. The sola simply means alone. So sola scriptura means scripture alone. In other words, today we used some other things in the meetings besides scripture because they just shed light on scripture. They're helpful. They're wisdom. That's God-given Bible-believing men. But they're not authoritative like the scripture. Amen. So when we talk about what has the final say, scripture alone. Amen. Then the next one was sola gratia. sola gratia, by grace alone. Grace alone means that there is no human involvement or nothing in the human being that got God interested in saving him. He wasn't interested in God saving him. It was all God's grace. His idea from eternity past and will carry it out through eternity future. God decided in grace to save. And that's the only reason anybody saved, that grace determined it. Sola fide means faith alone. And that goes back to Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace are you saved through Faith. But remember, where does the faith come from? See, a lot of people think, yes, I believe in faith alone, but what they mean is, if I want to believe, I can. If I don't want to believe, I won't. Don't you hear people saying that all yeah. the time? Where the Bible says, you can't believe because you don't want to believe, and unless God gives you a new heart and the gift of faith, yep. then you'll believe. So when we say sola fide, we mean with a God-given faith alone. Sola Christos means Christ alone. And obviously, that's the key to everything, isn't it? You know, it's not anything that anybody but Jesus did that saves. He alone is the Savior. He alone saves. You add anything to Christ, you just wrote yourself off from being a true believer. It's Christ alone that we trust in for salvation. And then soli deo gloria is just the fitting conclusion to all those other four, right? Because it means to God alone be the glory. Amen. If it was all his idea and if it was all his doing, then we just have to say, oh, God, you deserve all the glory. Amen. 
something with what Mike had said, you know, about the Latin and, and Roman Catholicism and so forth. You know, we can look at the Roman Catholic Church and see all of the unbiblical traditions that they developed and their false ways of thinking because of their traditions that aren't biblical. But let's just say here this is a Baptist church. Uh, they said not the building, but, you know, here we meet as a Baptist church. Baptists can, we can develop our own traditions and ways of thinking that also are not biblical over time and we can become imbalanced. So Latin was simply the language of ancient Rome. And of course, it became uh, a primary language that the educated knew during the time of the Reformation. And it was the language that many theology books were written in and so forth. So you have that. So when you have that understanding, uh, you're not going to, when you hear something in Latin, you're not automatically going to think, well, that must be Roman Catholic. As we're going through church history in our church, we've, you, we've looked at certain terms such as Catholic, the church in the second century, the Orthodox Church, referred to itself as the Catholic Church that separated themselves from the heretical groups such as the Gnostics and the Nicolaitans and the Ebionites and so forth. It was simply the church universal. That's different than what later became Roman Catholicism. Or if you take the term Eucharist, the church in the second century used the term Eucharist in uh, reference to the Lord's Supper. Well, Eucharist simply means giving thanks. But oftentimes we today, when we hear the word Eucharist, especially if we have a Roman Catholic background, we think, oh, that sounds Roman Catholic. Did these early church fathers believe in transubstantiation or something like that? You know, but in fact, no, Eucharist is a fine word to use. It simply means giving of thanks in reference to the Lord's Supper. So anyway, just saying that in reference to what Mike had said about Latin and Catholicism and so forth. Thank you. All right. Any, any other questions? All right. I guess that'll conclude our. Oh, oh yes, Dave. You mean uh, because the Jews used to meet on Saturday, right? We look in Scripture. Actually, I believe I can't remember who it was, but someone even read that verse and that, but. They, earlier today, during one of the sessions of that, right, but they gathered when we were talking about the local church, right, they gathered together on the first day of the week. So, you know, people say it's a new Sabbath. Uh, uh, let me explain. First of all, the Jews in the Old Testament, they all celebrate Saturday, right, the last day of the week, that's when they got together, and then they'd have their Sabbath. We celebrated the gathering together Sunday because that's the Lord's Day, because Sunday is when our Lord rose from the grave, right? Of course, Scripture also teaches us now, there, there is a thing in as being Baptist and that, but the Sabbath, see, has been fulfilled in Christ. We find our rest in Christ or we don't find rest, right? So the Sabbath itself actually has been answered in Christ, we find it in Christ, according to Hebrews. Hebrews teaches that, right? That you'll find that rest. You know, but though the Hebrews couldn't find that rest because they couldn't do it by faith. Right? But anyway, Sunday came about in the Christian tradition. It's always been that way. You gathered together on the first day of the week. We find when the church always gathered together, when it's mentioned when they gathered together, the days mentioned, it's always the first day of the week, which Sunday. Therefore, ever since then. Most churches, except, you know, there's some splits like uh, Seventh-day Adventists, for instance, and 
There, that's not the only thing that we would disagree with them about that, but for the most part, it's biblical, and I, and I don't know serious people that really now would question that. Just building on what Howard said, that verse, it's an interesting context, you know, where it says they gather on the first day of the week, because it says when Paul got to Troas, he was with the believers for, the, for a week, but on the first day of the week, yep. they worshiped. So it's kind of interesting. I mean, it doesn't come right out and say, you know, what do you want the reference? Yeah. Acts 20, verse 7. And yeah. Yep. And then just another one. You know, they took up a collection on the first day of the week yep. in uh, 1 Corinthians 16, 2. And you have the Lord's Day is mentioned in Revelation chapter 1, and verse 9. And, of course, the Lord's Day, it, it was always recognized as the Christians on the first day of the week because that was the day Jesus rose from the dead. And just to add in some church history in there again, you know, when you get to the second century, you find that the church writers at that time made it very clear, we as Christians meet on the first day of the week, which is the Lord's Day. That's not something that came about later because of pagan influence or because of Constantine in the 4th century, you know, in the early 300s. Nothing to do with the Council of Nicaea or anything like that. That was the practice of Christians from the beginning. Amen. Brother Todd. If I could first just, evangelicals and Catholics together is what you're asking about, right? It's to make sure I'm understanding the right one. The one that, the ones that, the big names that stick to my mind that really refuted that was, right, MacArthur, Adrian Rogers, and R.C. Sproul boldly stood against the most of the rest of so-called evangelicals. James Kennedy, actually. Oh, yeah, James Kennedy, that's right, not Adrian Rogers. I'm yeah. sorry, but I no, believe it. Right. Yeah. He did stand Yeah, but I really think when it comes down, can't, we don't, can't, I don't think we can really know, speak from them, why they do that. But if you remember, a lot of those same people were the same ones that signed the letter apologizing, right? All as Christians apologizing to the Muslims for the great atrocities we did unto them during the Crusades irregardless in response of 500 years of them murdering Christians. But anyway, but I'd say one thing to me, for a lot of them, for me, it called it, I would call not saying, Hey, you don't have your salvation, right? It says I, we don't have that kind of power, but I, I would really call them on the carpet about their commitment to the Lord, their understanding of the church, their understanding of martyrdom, and everything else. I do not understand how anyone, I honestly don't, born of the Spirit, could say there's nothing wrong. We're brothers, even though we believe it's okay to add work and our own merit to the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, making according to Scripture his death in vain, which says is, and it's the one place in Scripture where Paul himself has a double anathema for anyone that would dare do that. Why they did it, 
their justification, they're in it, but they never repent of it. I do not want to be them because they'll have to answer for that one day. I'm not going to say their salvation, but they'll, def they'll definitely have to answer for that. But what they did was wrong. There's no doubt about it. We can't say anyone who would hold to that doctrine, even though we might go, well, maybe they're saved, maybe they just don't understand, but if they're explained, you're saying you're adding your own work to the finished work of Christ, then we have to go to the Bible and say, I'm sorry, I cannot consider you a brother. I cannot walk with you because you are anathema. And that's what the Bible teaches, and we can't go by our emotions, right? And that's what I mean. It's, it's good to be safe with the Bible. But that's, that's a real, I can get going about that one, but sometimes in this day and age, right, it's all about, well, our feelings are, maybe I don't want to offend anyone. We all need to get along, right? Unity at all costs. But, no, it's unity through truth and love. You can't have true unity without truth and love. But with unity with truth and love, that's a blessed, glorious thing. I, I agree with everything Howard said. I think he, he said it well. You've got to say it strong. You can't say that soft. You've got to say it strong. Do you stand on grace through faith? The five solas. Do you stand on that alone, or do you stand on saying, well, if we bring in some works that are necessary for salvation, that's wrong. But I want to say one word in regard to one of the people that I know was involved with that that always kind of shocked me because I, I have benefited so much from the man, and that's, you probably heard of him, J.I. Packer. He wrote that famous book, Knowing God. And if you ever read that book, you'd say, next to the Bible, that almost seems inspired. It's so good. It's a good, good book. But I just want to say this. I think some people like J.I. Packer so bend over backwards to say, I don't want to be guilty of at least discussing these things again, that he leaves the door open. Now, I, w I don't think, I mean, the, the, to think that Roman Catholicism, which has the monumental domination of the world to ever think that they're the ones that are going to bend that that's not going to happen mm -hmm. but i think packer was of such a mind that he said i got to give it a shot mm -hmm. I, I don't think he was right i don't think it got anywhere but i think as far as why he did it i think that's why he did it yeah yeah he had that other book that i had i mean he's a, he was one again that just you're shocked uh you know evangelism the sovereignty of god and i mean it's 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 another one that again when he when he did that it, it was stunning i mean it was just absolutely stunning and and uh and so can can we talk just a moment you know uh, uh, kind of along those lines right we we've had another attack within the church in the recent years right in fact we have on our website the dallas statement and uh, that deals with uh, social justice it deals with the unholy gospel of the social justice those sorts of things um, could you, man, just take a moment and kind of explain to us what it is and then kind of the impact that you've seen that it's had on some of the churches and that sort of thing, if you could. But before I say that, can I just touch on one thing that Howard and Paul said, just kind of a practical application. Because secularism is all around us now, and because we see the downfall of our society and everything that is going on, I was talking with Brother Mark about this yesterday, there are some Roman Catholics that have some common sense, you might say some common grace, 
that they see the insanity of what is going on all around us. But we have to view this rightly. Just because they have that common sense doesn't mean that they are actually saved. And so because of that, we can agree with them. We can, you know, go against secularism as well and appreciate a lot of what they're saying. But we still have to remember that we still need to try to evangelize them too because they're still lost and in need of a Savior. So I just wanted to tell that we can be tempted to compromise with Catholicism during these times because we're both being pushed in the same corner by the monster of secularism right now. So that we just need to be careful of. As far as <coughs> social justice, it's simply Karl Marx's philosophy applied to the society. Now, in our own society, it's applied to race. And it's this whole idea of inequality and it's it's designed to not only split society, but it's also designed to split churches as well. And uh, really, it's it's kind of uh, a brother, you might say, to the social gospel of the early 1900s. Uh, but whenever you have this Marxist philosophy applied to society and the church buy into that, they're buying into something that is just completely unbiblical. And it's very, very complicated. But their idea of justice isn't biblical at all. So... Let me give you an example. If it's justice that everybody should have the same amount of income, well, that's not a biblical understanding of justice at all. Justice is punishing a crime. Justice is punishing that which is wrong, not making sure everybody has the same amount of wealth or the same amount of privilege and things of that nature. And, of course, this this is such a long subject. It's so deep. Uh, it's hard just to answer it really quickly. But it's it's just absolutely so unbiblical. Another thing, then, who is in charge of making sure everybody has the same amount of wealth? Well, the government is. So it just goes back to that where this is just complete government control. And it, it's sad to see how many evangelicals and how many reformed people, supposed reformed people, have given into this thing when it is so wrong. I just, since this is such a short time, and I'll let these guys speak too, just point you to two resources. E. Calvin Beisner has written an excellent book on this issue, and he takes the word justice, at least maybe from the New Testament, but I think every place in Scripture, and shows what the word means and how it never means the same thing as the way the social justice warriors uh, define it. And then also there's another DVD. I haven't seen this yet, but it's a new documentary called Enemies Within the Church, showing how the social justice movement is being used by the enemy to completely rip up the church. And so I just would uh, recommend those because from what I know, they're very excellent sources. So I don't know if you all wanted to say something. You know, it is, it is agree 100% with everything Dean said. And, you know, the thing about it, if you look further into that, social justice, right, and we've opened up that whole Pandora's box, and out of it's now come, right? It, I mean, they're basically comparing this so-called social justice, same with so-called trans justice and gender identity justice and everything, right? But if you're surprised and you look into it, it's really complicated. But if you look into it, everything, basically, you look at the leftist movement in this country, what it does is everything they call evil or bad right now, the Bible calls good. Everything they call good, the Bible calls evil. And we really have to watch over it. It's, it's no joke. For instance, if it's supposed to be just and fair and righteous for everyone to have the same amount of income, well, then God wasn't unfair or just or right at all. Why did he bless Abraham? Why did he bless a lot of his servants? Why did he bless David? Why did he bless the people of Israel more than any other nation? We have to consider these things, right? Biblically mindset. Everything they say is complete 
anathema. It's, it's completely opposite what the Bible teaches. You know, it is a complicated matter to get into, but that's all we need to know, irregardless. If we can just take the simple end to start with, if anything says that something God calls good, they call bad, you can just dismiss it right then without having to burn out your brain cells. Amen. All right. Uh, anybody else? Any other questions? All right. Okay. Well, uh, I guess this will bring us to uh, to the end of our uh, of our conference this year. And uh, with that being said, I asked Brother Paul if he would close us in prayer, and then we'll uh, and then we can be dismissed. Okay. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for the opportunities to gather together with your people, Lord, and on this occasion uh, that we don't normally get to see or be with, and we thank you for that added blessing. We thank you, Lord, for the word of God, Lord, which is, it's so wonderful to have an anchor in this world of turmoil. Lord, we, we just all, I think everything, every message today has brought out, Lord, what, what would we do if we didn't have the infallible guidance of your word where we could speak, Lord, and it comforts our souls. It comforts us deeply to be able to say this is right or that is wrong because the living God has spoken. And, Lord, we thank you above all for our Savior. And we're thankful, Lord, that he was willing to come. He who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. We give you all praise and thanks for this conference and pray for lasting fruit in his name. Amen. Amen.